Thank you all for coming. I'm happy to talk about what I think is a very important topic. Notice that uh, I said in computing, it's a bit bigger, I think, than just AI. And notice that I put a question mark there. We'll, we'll see later why, what's the, where does the question mark come from. So let me start with a dictionary definition. What is trust? Okay. Trust is reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, surety of a person or thing. Okay. This, is, this is trust. Uh, usually you mention trust in the context of some underlying risk. And you trust, it's a way to mitigate the risk. Uh, I don't know how many people play the trust fall game. Well, imagine you're sort of standing up here, like this, falling backwards. <laughs> now here you have two rows of your friends standing, and you trust that when you fall down, they will catch you. But you are falling backwards. You really have to trust them. So trust, in, in particular, is based on belief rather than knowledge. You don't really know that they're going to do that. But you hope, you trust. Okay, this is trust. If you haven't, if not played this game, don't do it. Don't do it at home. <laughs> now, why why is trust so important? So there is, I think this goes back to I believe to Wittgenstein, who said that every game has an unwritten rule. What is the unwritten rule? Follow the rules of the game. And if you just write it down, you have not solved the problem because you're still in another rule that says follow that rule. So this is always an implicit rule. Formally, what you're going to find in game theory, for example, the way this is also expressed is that the rules of the game are common knowledge among the players. Common knowledge means everybody knows the rule, everybody knows everybody knows the rule, everybody knows everybody knows, everybody knows the rule, and so on and so forth. But you know, often enough, everybody knows the rule. You have to trust that all the players are going to follow the rules. Think about it. You go to traffic light. Okay, you have green, they have red, a car is coming. You drive through because you know, you believe that they know that red light means stop and you believe that they will stop. Otherwise, if you are in uh, Cairo, for example, then you may not just go in full speed because there, there's, not, there's no same level of trust that the rules are being followed. Let's talk about another big important game. Democracy is another big game where you have to follow the rules. You have to trust it. Everybody else is following the rules. If you want to know what happened when that trust is broken, just watch south of the border. <laughs> so now let's come back. I would argue that we have an issue today with technology, with trust in technology. More and more our life depends on technology. We use technology all the time. Just look at the setup. I'm using technology. Marcus using technology. Most of you are carrying technology in your pockets, on your bag. To trust the technology, you either have to be familiar with the technology, or some of us are very familiar, but most of us are somewhat remote from the actual technology. Or you trust the people who develop the technology, or you trust the company that developed the technology, or you trust the industry that developed the technology. So I flew here. I was not really worried. The plane vibrated, but I was not worried. You know, what do I know about exactly how to build it? I don't. But I trust the industry. You know, they have a pretty good record, okay? What happens when suddenly the answer to all of this is none of the above? I don't know how technology to trust it. I don't know the people. I don't trust the company, and I don't trust the industry. Then we have a crisis of trust. And I think we're living in such days. You know, think about what happened with cybersecurity now. Every day, you hear about another breach, Facebook now, 
I don't know, 50 million uh, accounts. Every this is a this is a matter of this really happens on a daily basis. And I'll come back to it a bit later. You know, because of technology or because of insecure technology and more fundamental weaknesses in technology, American democracy was hacked. At the same time, privacy. You know, what do people in Silicon Valley tell you? There's no privacy. Forget about privacy. Privacy is dead. That's what they tell you. And more and more uh, in our life, decision making is made by, by technology in a completely opaque way. So we do have a crisis of trust. You know, in this case, you know, you read the phrase, explainable AI is a hot area. It's a hot research area. It's not an industrial reality. It's a, it's a desideratum. And do we trust technology vendors? Go try to read Twitter privacy policy. Maybe the lawyers can read it, but most of us, you know, it just go to the cook. Um, I was unfortunately in a yesterday in a panel of private security where the people on the panel were someone from Facebook and someone from Google and someone from Microsoft was completely self-serving. Okay, they will tell you how well they are doing on, on security and privacy. You know, the whole story I'll come back to a bit later. How Google started with "Don't be evil" and gradually said, "Well." Uh, maybe we should get rid of it. Uh, we learned the tech execs are not get, are, are in their home. No, no, no. The children should not use this technology. Your children, yes. Not their children. And this is not a coincidence. This is seem to be endemic to the tech industry. And part of what we are seeing as a result is what people are starting to call the tech clash. The backlash against technology. And this started sometimes, I saw it really coming, first of all, in the mainstream media last year, sometime last year. There was a column by Peggy Noonan in, in the Wall Street Journal. It was about guns, and it's kind of the context almost irrelevant and questionable. But here's what she wrote. Why do people want guns? Because all of the personal and financial information got hacked in the latest breach, because our country's real overload are in Silicon Valley and appear to be moral merchants who operate on some new postmodern ethical weapons, and they will be the one programming the robot who will soon take, to, soon take all the jobs. Okay? I think the connection to gun ownership is questionable, but this is a reflection of a mood. Again, what you do on Neil Ferguson last January, bigger context about networks, but the most alarming was the morphing of cyberspace into Siberia. Not to mention cyber caliphate, a dark and lawless realm where malevolent actors ranging from Russian trolls to privacy Twitter's uh, Twitter user could work with impunity. William Galston, this is the liberal that writes in the Wall Street Journal. And he talks about the economic impact, the shift of knowledge-intensive urban economies has also catalyzed the rise of an elite, the dominant government, the media, and other cultural institutions. You want to know who is this elite? Look to your left, look to your right, look in the mirror. You are, we are that elite. Its emergence has left less educated citizens in outlying towns and rural areas feeling the values, these strange deep and social divisions. And we are all seeing it. I mean, just reading the news every day, we are seeing it. Do you believe Kavanaugh? Do you believe Ford? This is it. 
um, an article just very recent in the motherboard. Uh, John Oliver had a, a episode, one of his episodes uh, about Facebook, called it a fetid swamp of mistruth and outright lies. He said, Oliver compared Facebook unfavorably to toilets, <laughs> which make sugar <laughs> go away. Whereas Facebook retains sugar, disseminate sugar to your acquaintances, and reminds you of your sugar from seven years ago, while allowing corporations to put their sugar in front of you. What I'm, what I'm, I'm saying, says John uh, uh, Oliver, is that there is purity integrity toilets. The Facebook seriously lacks. <laughs> okay? Wow. Now, this is a video, and I have to show you this video. So, uh, let me see if I can do that. But the sound doesn't work. Okay, I'm going to take it out. It's muted. Your computer is muted. Hmm? Your computer is muted. Muted. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good, good observation. In addiction, if they continued to sell cigarettes, it was too lucrative to stop. Millions. In 1994, executives from the seven largest tobacco companies in America were summoned to Congress to explain themselves. In their testimony, the executives said that smoking cigarettes was not addictive. They were lying. They'd known all along about nicotine addiction. If they continued to sell cigarettes, it was too lucrative to stop. Millions died as a result. Eventually, a wave of lawsuits forced the tobacco companies to admit that they knew this and to shell out hundreds of billions of dollars to victims and their lawyers. Suppressing smoking became a national priority. America understood that hurting people in order to get rich was wrong. Doing it on purpose is criminal. All of which raises serious questions tonight about Silicon Valley about what their products are doing to this country, particularly to children, and how much tech executives know about the potential harm caused by what they're selling. Already, psychiatric research has produced some ominous findings on this. Social media use is connected to anxiety, depression. I just want to show you that tech is now being compared to tobacco. The good news is that Fox News is now admitting that tobacco is bad. That's good news. <laughs> Now, this is an article from the mainstream media. Books, kind of uh, anti-tech books, if you want, started kind of a few years ago. This is from 2015, the Black Box Society. Every day, corporations are connecting the dots about our personal behavior, silently scrutinizing clues left behind by our work habits and internet use. So this is the Black Box Society. A book from uh, 2017, technically wrong, many of the services we rely on are full of oversights, biases, biases and downtime, nightmares, chatbots that harass women, sign up form that offend anyone who is not straight, social media that sites that send uh, peppy messages about uh, dead relative and so on and so forth. This is technically wrong. Uh, a book from this year, Automating Inequality, and again, the argument is that uh, this, the decision-making system have, uh, are causing inequality. This is, uh, this is, again, the whole book is about automating inequality. There are other books along, along this line. You may have seen like uh, Weapons of Math 
map destruction books along this line. This is another book in the chain of books that uh, question uh, the use of technology. And then we saw, going back to what we saw from Fox News, this is the tech industry war on kids. And what none of these parents understand, the children and teens, destructive obsession with technology, is the predictable consequence of virtually unrecognized merger between the tech industry and psychology. So there were, the tech industry is using a whole army of psychologists how to make you click, how to make you spend more time on the phone. And here is how this is viewed pictorially. <laughs> you know, I, I will put a child here rather than adult to make it even even more dramatic. But that's how people are now viewed what uh, what these forms are doing to us. And I want to take one specific example of use, use of technology, what I find especially egregious, and this is the use of machine learning in the in the justice system, the criminal justice system. Okay, so. About more than a year ago, Chief Justice John Roberts visited, uh, gave a talk at uh, or had some kind of event at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and had a conversation with the president of uh, RPI. And she asked, can you foresee a day when smart machine driven with artificial intelligence would assist with courtroom fact-finding or more controversial even with judicial decision-making? And he says, it's a day that is here. It's putting significant strain on how the judiciary goes about doing business. So this is not science fiction. This is reality. This is now. So it turns out that this is one of the thriving applications of machine learning. It's something you don't see because most of us are not involved in the justice system. But it is used to make... In justice system, you have to make lots of hard decisions. These are decisions affect people's life in, in one of the most profound way possible. And these are hard decisions, and they're hard for people to make this decision. So we have a solution. We're going to let machine make this decision. Should you get bail? What kind of sentence should you get? Should you go on parole? Should we separate children from their families? In some situation, you know, we think there is a, a possible harm to the children, and we separate them from their parents. Of course, you can imagine, this is incredibly profound decision. Difficult for social workers to make this decision. Let machines do it. And you can find, you can go to the to the website of North Point, the company that sells such a one of such a system. And it's a beautiful website, advanced justice, embracing community, all the marketing uh, hype that you can put into convincing you that this is really in the interest of humanity. But there are serious, serious questions about it. About uh, a, a bit more than two years ago, ProPublica, the ProPublica is a is a non-profit uh, investigative journalism. It's one of the few journalism can really go do in depth uh, and do and have become effectively an anti-tech because they, are, they don't have to be afraid of tech. They are well-funded, so they can go and do in-depth journalism. And they examine and they show that what, what we see is that these systems are, blessed, are, are biased against blacks. Okay, why? If we understand machine learning, if of course it's all about the training data, but if you don't scrutinize, if you don't take steps to make sure there's no bias, you end up with, with a system that's going to be biased against blacks. Um, and then uh, a, more, a, more in, a more technical evaluation of the accuracy and the fairness 
of predicting recidivism, an article that showed up earlier this year. And what they showed is the system that's used for this is COMPASS, is not more accurate or fair than prediction made by people with little or no criminal justice system. So everybody gets impressed. It's a computer, it's a system, it's machine learning, deep learning. But the reality is there is just under the cover, there's no version, so to speak. Okay? So they use allegedly 137 features. In reality, you could do the same with just two features. And even inside today the machine learning community, there are now criticism. So Al Rahimi was a machine learning researcher at Google. Uh, first he blogged about it, he called it the alchemy of AI. He said machine learning algorithms have become a form of alchemy. Researchers do not know why some algorithm works and others don't. Nor do they have a rigorous criteria for choosing one architecture over another. And uh, a paper was published in April and he documented this, this thing that he first blogged about in December 2017. And a paper that appeared earlier this year in Science talked about the reproducibility crisis in, again, it's mostly in machine, in machine learning. Again, that uh, papers are published, but uh, they have a replication crisis. Just because algorithms are based on code does not mean that experiments are easily replicated. Unpublished code and sensitive to training conditions make it difficult for our researchers to reproduce many key results. And to just to, as, as a parable to how I think uh, unacceptable, unacceptable this situation has become, imagine that I have a dog, very cute dog, let's say black lab, called Fluffy. And I train, I train uh, uh, Fluffy to recognize risk of recidivism. I bring Fluffy lots of people, some, some that did, uh, went back to crime, some that didn't, and Fluffy can smell them, and Fluffy figured out that you can smell recidivism. And I said, okay, you can even test, and Fluffy has passed various tests. Now I go to the, to the, to the federal, or let's say the, the state court of Houston, and I said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to bring Fluffy to the court. And you can see, if Fluffy sits down, then there's no risk of recidivism. If Fluffy walks around, then you know that this, this uh, criminal is a risk of recidivism and should not be paroled. And of course, everybody understands that if we really let Fluffy make parole decision, it's ridiculous, because it's a dog. But there's really no difference between a dog that is unexplainable neural system, and some machine learning, some deep learning system. There's really no difference unless we have, which I said is not a commercial, unless we have really explainable AI, then it's just like having a dog in a courtroom. Now, I want to state something and then I want to come back to it. So, people have been thinking about computing for quite a while. We can go back to Leibniz, okay? What was Leibniz's image when he talks about calculus ratiocinator, a reasoning calculus? He said, Menkal will then possess a new instrument that will en enhance the capabilities of the mind to far greater and extend an optical instrument such as the eyes. This is a beautiful vision of what computers should, should, be, computers should be about to, to help enhance our capabilities. Edda Lovelace, in a letter in 1843 to, uh, to Babas, Babas really wanted to have a startup and he wanted to make money. 
And she writes to him, it's okay, I'm okay with you making money. But she adds, I wish to add my might towards expounding and interpreting the Almighty, His laws and works for the most effective views of mankind. So we can call it now it's computing for social good. That was the original vision of computing. People thought this would be something for social good. <coughs> and so you see there is a gap between where we are and what was the initial ideology. And I call it our Ender's Game moment. How many people have read Ender's Game? So I'll do a bit of a spoiler to those who did not read it. I apologize. But in a nutshell, the story is about uh, a, a young teenage boy and his friends, and they think they're playing video games. Unbeknownst to them, they're playing an intergalactic war, and the story ends that they have they won, and they have destroyed the whole other civilization. And then there is a follow-up book about the remorse, but this is the book what the book is about. And this is the poster from the movie. And I think this is true for what computer scientists are today. You know, people get in computing because they like programming. It's like a, like a big, big puzzle. We're having fun. And suddenly we're discovering, well, we're, maybe we have not destroyed the world yet. But it's not a game anymore. Our technology is in the center of almost everything that happens today. So if you want, another analogy is think of the physicist in 1945 after the atomic bomb was, was, uh, was explode, exploded, and they had this, wow, what have we done? What have we wrought? And people think, OK, what we have on our hands is a crisis, ethical crisis. So New York Times from last February takes ethical dark side. Harvard, Stanford, and others want to address it. How to address it? We're going to teach computer science ethics. Everybody is now in every computer, computer science program. Quickly, let's add an ethics course. Boston Globe from this year, March. Computer science faces an ethics crisis. The Cambridge Analytica scandal proves it. Uh, again, take at Bloomberg. It's time for data ethics conversation at your dinner table. We have a shortage of ethics, and the solution is we need more ethics. Uh, there is something called the Computing Research Association. It's an association of all uh, computer uh, research organizations, which are PhD producing departments, computer science departments, and, and computer science research labs in North America, so Canada and the United States. And they have a biennial meeting. And uh, in, the, in, in last June, just a couple of months ago, or three months ago, we had uh, the meeting in, in Snowbird, Snowbird, Utah. And we had a panel on social responsibility. I moderated the panel. And roughly, these are the, these are the assumptions that we, we put, I put in front of three, uh, four panelists. We live now in a world that we have created. We can no longer pretend we are making the world a better place. What is our social responsibility as computing professionals and computer science departments? And pretty much the response was ethics, 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 ethics. This is the problem. We don't have enough ethics. And my reaction is, really? This is a problem, not enough ethics? And I want to, as an analogy, look, let's talk about the Ford Model T. The Ford Model T, all of the production line in 1908. It's not the first car. The car existed at this point about 50 years, was invented in Europe. But it's the first mass-produced, mass-consumed car. This car was, the, the Ford Model T was epochal moment in 
in modern, uh, uh, I would say, even Western civilization, our life now is dominated by cars. Just go out, car, car, car. The car has shaped our life. This is the, the most influential industrial product of the 20th century. And very quickly after cars come up, we discover, wow, it's really convenient to have a car, but cars kill people. Every year, more than about 1.25 million people around, around the globe get killed by car crashes. So it's a very deadly instrument. But it turns out that we have worked very hard to address this issue. So there are many ways you can look at it. You can look at the total number of people killed, but that's not a good measure because population goes. So the measure that, that uh, people in the, in the industry look at is death per million VMT, vehicles miles travel. How many people get killed per 1 billion VMT? And you can see that this has been a huge success story. We have been able to reduce mortality due to automobiles now for about a hundred years. It's been, yeah, there is one zigzag here, I'm not sure what happened, but generally it goes down and down and down. Probably it's a little up now because of something called DWT. What is DWT? Driving while texting. It used to be DWI. Now that's passe. DWT is the hot way to die. <laughs> How did we do it? Well, we basically, part of it was engineering. You know, we put mirrors and antelope brakes and airbags and we design, we redesign our cities, we have crosswalk and we have traffic light and we have laws. The, answer, the response was not, let's train all drivers, let's give all drivers ethics course. That was not the response. What was the response? The response was public policy. So this is useful technology, but it has adverse, adverse side effects. Let's come up with a public policy to address these side effects. Now, it's not that we, don't want, we want unethical drivers, but if we think it's unethical to drive while intoxicated, we passed a law, okay? If, you, if we catch you driving while you're intoxicated, you will go to jail. In Texas, they finally passed last year a law. They're not allowed to text while you're driving. It took them some time, but now it's illegal. So, public policy. So what I want to do now is go back to technology and show that the real issue is not lack of ethics, but lack of public policy. So let's start with the, with the internet. So uh, for some of you, young enough, the internet always existed, but it didn't always exist. Some of us are old enough to remember in the, in the, the roots of the internet. The internet actually is quite old, but before it became you know, widespread, already in the 80s, we had various kind of bulletin boards the well was in the uh, dial-up bulletin board in the Bay Area, was very influential. Usenet, anybody remember Usenet? Okay, people use Usenet. But you have to remember the cultural context in which it happened. It happened in the United States, and the 60s and the 70s, actually even internationally, was a time of, of uh, anti-establishment. Think of what happened, Paris 1968. Also in United there was the hippies, there was anti-establishment uh, cultural movement. And one of the things that came out of this cultural movement was because of this, this anti-establishment anti kind of a, a culture was information wants to be free. And indeed, when the web was started, the idea was free, unfettered sharing of information. That was the idea. So 
if you remember the people who were around in the early days of the of the web, it was intoxicating. You could put you you could create a personal website, you can share what you're doing, everybody could share what you're doing. And people very quickly realize, wow, just a minute, everybody does it. How do we find things? There's too much stuff. And so it was okay in the early days, and you can use you know Gopher and links, all kind of early system, but very quickly people discovered that too much stuff. You can't find this stuff. So this became a big issue in the in the late 90s, how can you find stuff? So the first solution was, let's build a directory. And Yahoo was a company whose first business model was, we would build a directory for the web. You can go and find everything by looking at a catalog, so to speak. It didn't scale, there was too much stuff on the web. So very quickly people realized catalog does not work. Instead, we need search engine. The idea of search was invented. And there were some previous, previous search engine, AltaVista, Lycos, they all sucked. Okay? You just throw too much stuff on the web and you got some random stuff, it was useless. And then Google came up with a brilliant idea. They used something called PageRank, which really had to do with the graph structure of the web. And suddenly you put a, a simple query and bang, you got exactly what you wanted on the first page. It was quite amazing. Now, from Google's point of view, remember, information wants to be free. They assume that the search engine has to be free. So how do they monetize it? They have to make money. It's a business. It's a company. And they had a brilliant answer. Let's copy what's happening in mainstream media. Television is broadcast television, which was at, at the time the dominant thing, is free. Newspapers are not free, but they're actually very cheap. How, how do they exist? Advertising. So they said, let's copy the advertising model. But it turned out that when you just start, start doing advertising, people very quickly realize that this advertising is very ineffective. Most people just completely ignore the advertisement. And so they realize if, if you want the advertiser to pay, you have to make the advertising more effective. And therefore, you need, tar you need targeted advertising. You need to match advertisement to what you are looking at. And that led to the fact that to target advertising, we have to observe what you are doing on the internet. And that led to, to the today, if you look at Google and Facebook, how do they make money? They sell your data essentially to the advertisers. That's how they make money. So, so it became, a, a, the internet became a surveillance machine. And the surveillance is much more than you realize. For example, Google has a partnership with MasterCard. Because they want to know, if you're looking at something on the web, does it translate to a real purchase in the real physical world. So MasterCard will give them the information about all your transaction, and they will correlate it with their, with their data of observing you. Or just recently came out, just in the last few days, that uh, if you use Gmail, how many people use Gmail? Google said, we don't read your email. But they let third parties read your email. They can say, we don't read your email. But oh yeah, third party, you didn't ask about third party. Okay? Third parties, they let them read your email to decide what advertisement to send you away. How well is working for Google? Amazingly well. Okay? Probably this year it will be a hundred billion dollars in terms of income from this is all income from advertising. And really Google for all of the you're hearing about Google, Google Brain, Google Schmay, Google makes money on advertising. Targeted advertising. That's the business model. And it's incredibly successful business model. I want to see that. It's incredibly, it was a brilliant business idea. 
So let's imagine now, I want to see, they're making close to $100 billion. And now let's imagine that we're going to take Sergey Brin and Larry Page are going to agree. We're suddenly going to send them. They'll come here to Toronto. And Marcus will arrange for them a week-long boot camp <laughs> in ethics. Okay? Yes. Kant, you know, Hume, everybody, the whole thing, the whole shebang. So what will happen? They're going to go back to Mountain View and tell people, you know what? We just had this wonderful week-long boot camp on ethics in the University of Toronto. And we realize that this is wrong what we are doing. So we're going to ditch this business model that give us, bring us $100, million, $100 billion a year. And so Google has been struggling with this, with the ethics from the very beginning. You know, in the IPO, they had this famous slogan, don't be evil. We believe strongly in the long term will be better served a shareholder and all in other ways by company that does good things for the world, even if we go some short-term gains. Short term gains like hundred billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but only in two thousand nine, I don't know this guy. Do you know this guy? Chris Hufnagel? Berkeley Laws Information Privacy Center. And he said the evil talk is not only an albatross for Google, it took to the substantial consumer benefits from Google advertising model. Wow. So how are you benefiting? How are we all benefiting from Google's uh, advertising model? Everybody said, ah. Because we're getting these really wonderful services, you know, I mean, Google, you find information on the web, I use the calendar, I use Gmail, and it's all free. What can be, what's wrong with that? So, are they really free? Well, Google makes $100 billion. Where does the money come from? You say, no, 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 it's not from us. The advertisers, advertisers are paying Google. Wait a minute. Where do you think the advertisers get their money? They don't print it. It's just part of what we all pay for everything we buy. We are, it's our money. It's simply advertising, it's just cost of doing business. It's just part of how they compute. Any, anybody who sells you anything, if they do advertising, you are paying back for this advertising. So we are paying for this. But it's completely opaque to us. It's invisible. We can think, ah, this is great. We love Google. Google is free. But the result of this free is this mass surveillance. That's the result of this free services, free business model. And let me take kind of an extreme example, okay? So let's talk about markets. Markets are an incredibly efficient mechanism for discovering value of things. What is the value of this laptop? I, I like this laptop quite a lot. If somebody now tried to sell me a somewhat better laptop, for $5,000, I would say, nah, that's a bit too much. I need something a little cheaper. Ultimately, the market decides what is the value of a laptop. And it's an incredibly efficient mechanism for discovering the value of things. Markets are imperfect. We can spend a whole time. I hope that part of what you do here in this in this, in this ethics and let's talk about markets as a big topic. But markets, with all their weaknesses, are an incredibly efficient mechanism for society to discover values of things. What happened here, we destroyed the market. We don't know what is the value of things. I mean, there have been one big experiment in the world in destroying market, that was communism, and the result was a disaster. So we need to always, you know, uh, uh, put markets in the context. But without markets, actually, it's much worse. But the problem here is not ethics. The problem is we don't have public policy about information. That is the problem. If we teach Larry, Larry Page and Sergei Brin ethics, 
it would not change the situation. So this is one example. Now I want to talk about the other example. You all sign licenses all the time. You don't even know. You sign license day and night. So let me read to you a typical license. To the, to the extent not prohibited by applicable, I think it should be law, what happened here, law, in no event shall XXX be liable for personal injury or any incidental special indirect or consequential damages whatsoever, including without limitation damages for loss of profits, corruption or loss of data, failure to transmit or receive any data or information, witness interruption or any other commercial damage or losses arising out of or, or related to your use or ability to use the XXX software. What is XXX? Anybody knows? Apple Corporation. This is Apple. Okay? This is this is how you know they are not responsible, they are not liable. Okay? So, so this is the this is what you see actually, you see it from Apple, you see it from many other companies. And let's compare it to something called strict liability. What is strict liability? Strict liability, and again, they're lawyers, so they know more than me about it. It's a notion that you have, you are liable even without, in the absence of fault or criminal intent. If, if I, the car manufacturer, if you drive a car, and the car, I used to own Ford Pinto. Ford Pinto used to blow up when somebody rear-ends it, okay? I did not know it when I bought the car, in my defense, and it never exploded for me, but, Ford has a strict liability. Even if the, you could prove no criminal intent or no negligence, they are still liable. And this doctrine of strict liability, it's applied in particular in product liability. And if you provide product to the public, if you make it or you sell it, you're responsible for the injuries. Now, typically, product liability is limited to tangible personal property. So it applies to tangible personal property. Software is not tangible tangible personal property. So if the laptop blows up and cause damage, maybe they're responsible. But software, no, 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 no. We are not responsible except for the extent applicable by law, which is very little law about it, turns out. Almost no law that discuss liability, software liability. Now let's contrast it to the situation 4,000 years ago. The laws of Hammurabi. If a builder has built a house for a man, has not made his work sound, and the house which he has built has fallen down, and so caused the death of the householder, that builder shall be put to death. <laughs> this is strict liability. Okay? <laughs> if he destroys property, he shall replace anything that it has destroyed, because he has not made sound the house which he has built. So it doesn't say if the builder was negligent, if the builder had criminal intent. You built a house, you did a lousy job, you're responsible. So this is the contrast between what existed during Hammurabi's time and what we have today with software technology. But I think software engineers would say that nobody would build a house ever again. We'll come back to, to the argument. So in 1996, Helen Nissenbaum, uh, an ethicist, wrote an article called Accountability in Computerized Society. And she said this essay warns of eroding accountability in computerized societies. It argues that assumptions about computing and feature of situation which computers are produced create barriers to accountability. 
and she has some recommendation, explicit standard of care, which you don't have, strict producer liability, and so on and so forth. So again, it's not about ethics, it's about public policy. What is the law about liability? Software is not a tangible, tangible product, therefore it's not covered by standard uh, product liability laws. So how come there is so little public policy about information technology? Well, today, most of technology issues are driven by five major companies. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook. And the value will change from week to week. This is when I prepared the slide, but it's changed. But nevertheless, the market equity in total is over $4 trillion. You can imagine this corporation carries tremendous amount of cloud. And this is not just this five. If you go back before, they would be Microsoft, before it would be IBM. These are all big tech companies. And they have successfully lobbied. They don't want this kind of legislature. That's what they say. Nobody will write software. Well, people are still building houses. People would write software. They would write it differently. I do, I do research on reliability of software. There will be more money for research on reliability of software. <laughs> <laughs> Right now, it's a scramble to get it because the for, for because liability is so low, the business model for them is functionality and feature sell. Security, privacy, reliability, these are not features. And so we have systems that are unreliable, that are unsecure, and they don't protect privacy because they doesn't sell. I mean, take it in contrast, for example, in, I have friends who buy Volvo because the Volvo is safe. We don't have a situation that somebody advertises that my operating system is safer than the other operating system. We're not there. So they have been arguing for many, many years under the mantra, regulation stifles innovation. We should let innovation keep going. If you try to regulate it, we're going to stifle innovation. And again, to understand part, you have to go to, you have to understand the culture of the technology industry. And some of it comes from what we call techno-utopian culture. Just to give an example, John Perry Barlow, who just uh, uh, died a few months ago, and he was the founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And in 1996, he wrote a declaration of the independence of cyberspace. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giant of flesh and steel. I come from cyberspace, the new home of the mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past, to leave us alone. Believe it or not, people do this gobbledygook seriously. As if somehow what happened in cyberspace will stay in cyberspace. But people are seriously talking about a cyber attack on the US or just more inviting target than, than Canada, but the US power grid. Can you imagine? This would be a catastrophe. You shut down power grid, many, many, many people will die if you shut down today the power grid. I mean, you can imagine of a kind of a 9-11 scenario where at least as many people will die if you shut down the power grid. Or let's imagine something else, a cyber attack on the US election system. Oops, I don't have to imagine it. It has happened. <laughs> and here's another part of the culture of, of, uh, of Silicon Valley. So in 1995, Clay Christensen, a business professor at Harvard, came up with the concept of disruptive innovation. Uh, this is the definition, the process by which a product or service take root initially in, in simple application, 
at the bottom of the market, then relentlessly move up market, eventually displacing established competitors. Think of the PC, and how gradually it went up and up and up, and now mainframe are using banks and insurance companies, but no one else is using mainframes. And in the paper that he wrote in Harvard Business, business uh, uh, Review, he, the demos, he demonstrated it with this type of technology. This card used to be yeah big. And the generation of technology, each one becoming smaller and smaller and smaller until now it's about that, that big. No company was able to transcend this transition. Every time a new player had to come in and use to show to, to, to shrink the size of these tribes. This has become a trope, a mantra today in Silicon Valley. Look at how many business plans. We're going to disrupt this and disrupt that. And a recent business a tech conference in San Francisco was called Disrupt. This is even, even the name of the conference. Everybody thinks we should be disruptors. <coughs> but it's very close from being disruptors to being a breaker. So Google motto until 2014, when they became too big and they realized that it's not exactly politically correct, was move fast and break things. Unless you're breaking stuff, you're not moving fast enough. That was their, their motto, move fast and break things. Break whom? So today we know that Facebook frictionless sharing enabled massive dissemination of fake news. And this had a decisive effect, impact, on the 2016 presidential election in the United States. People are still debating it. You will hear which hunt, which hunt. But I recommend to everybody a book that just came out about a week ago by Kathleen uh, Jamison, a professor at uh, I think a Duke, cyber war, and she concludes basically, she said, the case about the, the, the impact of the Russians on the US election, and she said, well, we don't have, I can't say it's beyond the shadow of doubt, but we have preponderance of, preponderance of evidence, which we to use in civil cases, that indeed the Russian intervened, and basically with a combination of, of two things, uh, stealing emails from the, from the DNC, Democratic and National uh, Committee, and then disseminating it, and then using it on, uh, on, uh, on Facebook to disseminate news, and the election would decide by such an hour margin that this was enough to tilt the election. So I don't know how many people ever saw the Manchurian candidate. Well, today we're living in an era called the Siberian candidate. <laughs> <laughs> so if you talk to industry, we'll say, yes, yes, but we are very responsible. There is a concept of Corporate responsibility. That's the mantra that you hear from all these corporations. What is corporate responsibility? This is not new. This goes back to the 60s. It's a form of self-regulation. For example, there is a partnership for AI. So all these, many of the companies that do AI, they form this partnership, so they will be responsible with AI. And I have no doubt that the people who, who are involved in that, I know some of them, and they mean well. Okay? But and the idea is that we will sacrifice some profit for social goal, as, as Google stated in the 2004 IPO statement. And until the 80s, if you ask a CEO, whom are you trying to serve? Who are your stakeholders? He, the CEO would say, I have many stakeholders. I have my shareholders. I have customers. I have employees. The community in which my plant or my, my, my business is located, these are all stakeholders. And I have to think about the welfare of the corporation, but also I have to think about these this many, many different types of, of, of uh, stakeholders that I have, to, I have to consider their interest. And then there was a, a revolution 
in the, in the ideology of businesses starting in the 1980s and became known as shareholder values. And the idea was that the shareholders are the owners of the company. Now legally, this is not the case. The corporation has no owners. The corporation is self-owned. Like, who owns you? Nobody owns you. You are self-owned. Corporation is self-owned. The shareholders are legally investors. They are not owners. But this ideology said, no, they are owners. And therefore, all we have to do is to make sure that they, we have to enrich them. That's it. We don't care about the customers. We don't care about the employees. We don't care about the community. All we care about are shareholder value. Usually it means increase the, the value of the share. And in fact, one of the things that happened is the compensation for CEOs aligned to make sure that the share goes up. And here's what we have seen happen with CEO compensation. It's just skyrocketed. Okay? And this in the United States is, is an outlier when it comes to CEO compensation. And that means the corporate responsibility is very nice. But that's not really what a corporation is supposed to do, according today to the dominant dogma in the business community. Corporation is supposed to generate profits and increase the return to the shareholders. So I think there's no doubt we live in a world where technology is driving the future. But who is doing the steering? I would argue right now, tech corporations are doing the steering. Is ethics important? Of course, ethics is important. But <coughs> ethics is not a substitute for public policy. Technology has moved very fast. Public, public policy has lagged behind. And the answer was always, well, if you try to regulate us, it will stifle innovation. But I, I would argue today that making sure that technology benefits society as a whole is more important than more technology and more innovation. Societal benefits, societal well-being should be a dominant value. Now, it turns out that just over the last few months, I think somehow the mentality has changed. Here, just, I just collected, notice the dates. These are all just from the last couple of weeks, okay? Financial times. Social media platforms drawn into regulatory and political net. Guardian, time to regulate Bitcoin, said Treasury Committee report. Quartz, the EU antitrust chief is setting her sight on Amazon. New York Times, Amazon, Google, and Twitter executive are headed to Congress. Should the legislator give consumer control over the data companies have on them? And so on and so forth. And actually, I have to say, I'm worried that we are going to go all the way suddenly to the other side. We have ignored public policy and regulation for so many years, and now we, we are going to rush and do it. And to do regulation wisely, to do smart regulation is difficult. And so suddenly we are going to go all the way to the, to the other side. So I want to finish by, by telling you what, where we started. We started with computing for the social good, Leibniz and Ada Lovelace. That's what they were trying to push for, computing for social good. Thank you very much.